electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. And thank you, Melissa. Welcome to this CNBC special, Taking Stock. I'm Morgan Brennan, and Kramer has the night off tonight. A deep dive into the world's second largest economy, China. As one of the country's top tech CEOs goes missing, sending shutters through the investment community. Shares of his stock, China Renaissance, tumbling 28%. The Hang Seng falling in nearly 1.3% in trade today. And the Shanghai Composite ending the trading day in the red as well. Back here at home, the Dow closing near the high of the session, but notching its third straight week of losses. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq each ending the day down less than 1%. We're going to break down what it all means for you and for your money. Tonight, a China expert and friend of that missing Chinese executive joins us to give an inside look at what's happened to others in a similar position. And as bosses go missing, we'll ask the CIO of Crane Shares, which runs the China tech ETF KWeb, how to navigate all of these challenges as an investor and find the opportunities in the region. Plus, forget balloons. Why China's top surveillance method could be sitting in the palm of your hand. We've got a lot to get to tonight, but first we start with today's big story. China may be reopening, but U.S.-China business relations remain tense. Questions when it comes to these Chinese, to the Chinese business environment, especially in light of news today that a top Chinese investment banker has gone missing. Yunus Yun joins us now with more. Yunus, it's so great to speak with you today, and I guess bring us bring us the latest in terms of what we know about this situation on the ground well, the there. The company, China Renaissance, has informed the Hong Kong Stock Exchange that it is unable to contact the founder, Bao Fan, uh, basically tanking the stock by about 50 percent at one point today. Uh, the, um, uh, the man, Bao, he's uh, a very well-known uh, tech investor as well as a banker uh, to the tech elite in the early days of, uh, say, Alibaba, Baidu, as well as Tencent. He was able to make connections and also is uh, seen as a man who's been uh, very critical to some of the deals and IPOs of other big tech names such as JD as well as Trip.com. Now, some of his close contacts as well as his um, other investors have uh, said that they're quite concerned and really hoping 
that at this stage he's just assisting in an investigation um, for either a government official or a former employee, as opposed to being a um, target of an investigation himself. Now, this all comes as uh, President Xi Jinping has renewed his pledge to support private enterprise as well as foreign investment. Uh, but even so, there is a lot of concern among foreign investors, especially U.S. CEOs, who have been uh, discussing uh, making uh, potential uh, trips out to China uh, because of the reopening, but are getting quite concerned. In fact, the American Chamber of Commerce here has said that uh, there's a lot of hesitation because of the visa issues uh, and uh, unclear uh, COVID situation, but most importantly, the uh, political climate. So, um, in, in light of that, I'm just curious. Did they cut out? Uh, can you hear me, Eunice? All right. I think we, okay. So I think we're having some tech difficulties. Our thanks to Eunice Yoon for setting up uh, the broader conversation we're going to have now. Our next guest, uh, a friend of Baofan. He's known the executive for 20 years. He's also fresh off a meeting with the Biden administration about the U.S. strategy regarding China. James McGregor, the chairman of Greater China for consultancy, APCO Worldwide, joins me now. James, thanks so much for being with me. And, and, and let's start right there with this disappeared banker. Uh, you say you've known him well. Walk me through what is potentially happening here, especially when you think about the fact that in the past handful of years, we've seen a number of high profile Chinese businessmen and executives disappear or go missing, uh, many of them to, to show up again again later, but, but maybe not in the same type of powerful financial position that they were to start with. Yes, uh, let me start with Baofan. Baofan may be the best liked, the best known um, person in the financial community in China. All the journalists know him. Everybody in finance knows him. He's known to be a straight shooter. Um, he's well-liked. He's got a lot of integrity. I would be shocked if he's got anything going on, any kind of corruption. You know, the, the president of his, um, of, of his group company was detained in September uh, for supposedly for securities violations. Um, so the hope is that Balfon has been, you know, what they do when they're doing these things, they grab people and bring them in and um, detain them for a few days and question them. And then, if you know, if it's just there to be part of the investigation, they let them go. You know, the, the, the chairman of uh, uh, Fosun in 2015, this happened to him. It was headlines all over the world because he was known as China's Warren Buffett. He showed mm -hmm. up four days later. So um, let's hope that's happen That's what happens with Baofan. Now, um, the larger the larger uh, picture of this, I mean, the, the, the party has taken a hammer and sickle to the uh, private enterprise in the last ten years, and they've gone after a lot of corrupt people. They've actually gone after people that have um, people that are you know running big conglomerates, whether it's the tech platforms or it's the real estate companies. They don't want money to have power. They don't want capital to have power. So they're trying to put all these people in their place. They want people to make money, but they want them to carry out what the party wants. They don't want them doing games. They want them doing chips. They want them doing uh, new materials. So uh, it's, um, it's, a, it's a brave new world out there doing business in China. Yeah, and I'm sure if you're a CEO of a multinational company, maybe an American CEO or CEO from another part of the world uh, who's maybe considering coming to China uh, to visit operations for the first time since before the pandemic even, uh, you're 
looking at all of this and trying to trying to game out the risk uh, of what a visit right now between the situation as situations like this domestically and then also the fact that you do have these tensions between the U.S. and China, um, most recently because of this surveillance balloon uh, playing out what that looks like. How would you advise CEOs who maybe are looking to come in the coming weeks and visit China right now? You know, I think too much is being made of the security issue. I think uh, I think CEOs, American CEOs with big business in China are in more political danger in Washington for, for uh, their business in China than they are, um, you know, any kind of personal or security danger in China. China has pivoted. Now, whether this is genuine long-term or it's tactical because their economy is doing so bad. They are being very nice to foreign business. Um, uh, party secretaries are visiting multinationals. Uh, the American Chamber of Commerce in Beijing has, um, and they can't keep up with the schedule of meetings with officials who want to talk to them and be nice. So I doubt if any any uh, CEO going to China is going to be in any danger right now. But Washington's a different story. I mean, there's a lot of people in Washington who don't think a big American company should be doing business in China, which you know I don't agree with. But um, the, you know the far right in uh, Washington has that attitude. What is it like to do? And if you're a CEO who is coming in and and working, you know, has an operation in China, what is it like to do business in China? Um, how do you navigate? those dynamics, given the fact that it is a very different economy, it is a very different political structure than it is in other parts of the world? Well, you know, we've, you know I lived there 30 years, right? And I mm-hmm. saw the rise and the openness and China welcoming foreign business. And really, it, what it's kind of been is you're, uh, there's two kinds of companies uh, and foreign companies in China today. Those that need China and those that China needs, because China's market is a huge power for them. And so if, if you have technology or, or know-how or things that can help grow their economy, you're going to have opportunities in China. But if you need China, they're going to try to use that leverage. So it's a, it's a much more hard, comp, uh, complicated situation than it used to be. And so companies have to have both eyes open. The thing is, if they're not in, if you know, you can't not be there is kind of the equation. Because if, if you're not there, Samsung is, is there, Siemens is there, the Europeans are there, the Japanese are there, the Koreans are there. And if you don't, if, if you don't make it in China, you may not make it globally because that market is, that's where the growth is. That's important. It's also a place where innovation is. A lot of companies use China to innovate. Um, manufacturing people are doing a lot of innovation in artificial intelligence now in China because China moves at China's speed. So it is it is very complicated. The dark politics are, are it's true, um, uh, important. Um, and then you got the market. We've never been in this situation. This is a whole new world. It, it almost feels like there's two buckets uh, in terms of doing business in, in China as a multinational. There's, there's doing the business for the Chinese, for the Chinese market. And then there's manufacturing or doing business in China to then export it to other parts of the world. And we keep hearing about this idea of supply supply chain diversification, something that maybe started with trade dynamics between the U.S. and China and then was accelerated with the pandemic. Are you seeing more companies begin to move more of that manufacturing capability, for example, and, and their supply chains out of China, even to other parts of the region in light of all of this? Or is, is this being talked about more than it's actually happening? Uh, yeah, they're, they're, you know, they're offshoring, they're nearshoring, they're friendshoring. I mean, basically, companies that are manufacturing for the world in China are moving manufacturing out. Maybe not all of it, but 
quite a bit of it because, well, the tariffs and the sanctions, they learned, um, you know, they, they were, and, and COVID, zero COVID, they were stuck. And so they're moving a lot of that out. And also China got very, very expensive years ago. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, they, they were eating margin to stay there because it worked so well. So they're moving out. But on the other hand, many companies are doing in China for China. They're bringing more into China for their China business uh, because they don't want to be blocked on the on, on the supply chains they need and the materials they need for their business in China. So this is it's a it's going two ways. It's not everybody leaving. A lot of people are doubling down on China. Final question for you. You mentioned that you've lived there for 30 years. I mean, the data that we get uh, is spotty when it comes to economic growth from the country. What is your sense of the economy in real time and, and, and the domestic uh, sentiment in real time where that intersection between the economy and uh, I guess the, socio, the socioeconomic climate is what I'm getting to. What does that look like domestically? How is that shaping policy on the world stage as well? Well, you know, we, 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 it's such a dark view of China these days. And you got to remember, the Chinese people have had huge progress under the party. Whether you like the party or not, they've had huge progress. And they're scared to death if the party disappeared, they would have, they'd have chaos. Now, that doesn't mean zero COVID didn't make people unhappy. That doesn't mean the, the rough... Uh, you know the the lack of the uh, of the of the go go days is um, you know that that's ending that that's not a problem, but um, people in China are living their lives. The country is moving ahead uh, no matter what we do, and so I I always want to you know when I go to Washington I say you know we got to be careful not to overestimate ourselves and underestimate China. You know what I'd like to do you know those um, those glass bottom boats where you go look at fish. I'd like to put members of, of, of policymakers in Washington in a glass bottom airplane and have them fly across China, fly across these cities and see the, the incredible manufacturing capacity, the te- technology capacity, the, you know, the, the bullet trains, what's happened there. Because I think a lot of them. Look- OK, I think we just lost uh, our connection there as well. We're, we're starting off with some tech difficulties here. But our thanks to James McGregor, chairman of APCO Worldwide's Greater China Region. Let's drill down on the national security piece uh, with someone who knows the ins and outs of how geopolitical tensions impact military strategy and also has extensive experience on the investor side and what that means from a financial market standpoint. Richard Spencer, former secretary of the Navy, joins me now. Uh, Mr. Secretary, it's great to have you on. Um, We just talked a little bit about corporate strategy where China is concerned for multinational CEOs and uh, the domestic picture as it as it is on the ground. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about the relationship between the U.S. and China, where national security is concerned, where trade is concerned uh, and what it means, given the fact that there's a lot of focus on this balloon. But given the fact that the tensions are very are very uh, taut these days. Yeah, Morgan, great to be on. Thank you for the invite. You know, China is probably the front and center relationship that that we are going to have to invest the time and continue to hone our skills on how to deal with uh, with that entity. And what I mean by that, uh, it's a whole of government approach we must take. You know, it's not just state and DOD, it's commerce, it's agriculture, it's education, it's energy, and it has to be coordinated and coordinated with the private sector and our allies. This is all hands on deck. Because there is opportunity. I get it from from Wall Street side of the equation, from from commerce side of the equation. There's tremendous opportunity over there. But on a national security front, there's quite a big threat. 
And it's it's two Chinas. One person's opportunity is another man's threat. Um, so it's going to take all hands on deck because it's too important. It's our largest trading partner. But yet what they're doing uh, to the national security uh, uh, scale in this uh, around the globe is really concerning. So let's dig into that a little bit more, because uh, as the DOD would put it, it's this near peer competition. Uh, it's a pacing threat. Uh, what does that mean as it relates back to technology? I think about the export controls that were just put into place between the two countries uh, a, a number of months ago. How does it speak to how does it speak to the way to think about this moving forward? Because I hear terms like a new Cold War or a tech Cold War, but but that that almost seems too black and white. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, you know, uh, we also use the word competition and competitor when we when we uh, talk about China. And uh, I am actually of the camp that it is time to compete and we'll compete with all the tools we have. We haven't we haven't had a, a meaningful competition in quite some time. So, I mean, game on United States. You know, let's focus on STEM to compete one on one. Let's not just strangle, but let's build our own capabilities also. This goes to the national security front. Also, everyone says, OK, China's outproducing us in ships. Uh, yes, ship count might be very important, but let's focus on capability, which is what we have an angle over China on right now. Um, again, it's going to be using every single lever we can in a competitive front to stay ahead. Uh, a couple of years ago, I remember having a, a conversation with a CEO of uh, a company that was a contractor to the Navy. And one of the things that I found so surprising was how how tricky it was from an intellectual property standpoint to keep the technology um, safe and how much hacking or attempts to hack uh, had happened with this company uh, where where China was concerned, uh, which goes back to the, to the idea of a military threat and, and that intersection uh, between business and, and national security. I don't think folks realize uh, what exactly happens behind closed doors and how it feeds back into this military civil fusion concept that is in China. The, the, you just hit the nail on the head of one of the one of the most meaningful aspects that people must understand. In China, the commercial side, which we might call the private side, is completely fused by admission to the military and security forces of China. Uh, you know, I, I, I think you and I talked about this, Morgan, earlier. We had an example, and I use this as how tricky uh, uh, the relationship must be managed. When I was at Navy, um, one of the things that, uh, that we had in place was a thing called the Thrift Savings Plan. And this is a, think, 401k for our uniform services and our civilian DOD employees, government employees. Uh, I was having a background in investments. I was looking through the, the TSP offering, and they wanted to, the, the, the Board of, of Trustees for the investment thesis for TSP wanted to offer all their uh, participants global exposure for diversification of your portfolio. I totally get it. But with the, they were looking at an index that was uh, fairly good weighting into China, and we were looked into the holdings of what that weighting had. And there were five defense companies in China that were developing and manufacturing the weapons that would be firing upon our service members. And I said, this actually does not make sense. And it took us a while to actually wrestle that down to the ground and make sure that wouldn't happen. But these are the intricacies that you have in this relationship. 
How does it speak to, because you are also the former CFO of ICE, which is the company that owns the New York Stock Exchange. How does it speak to some of the perhaps overlooked or, or not typically discussed risks about what it means yeah. to invest in China? Well, you know, um, we had the period, which I call the wooing period, where we were wooing all these Chinese companies to come over here and list on our exchanges in the U.S. and access one of the most robust and deep capital markets in the globe. And we are providing exceptions for them to list on the exchange, exceptions that I never would have gotten as I was trying to list ICE on the exchange, exceptions that no U.S. or foreign company besides China would get as an exception. And yet we let them come on board. And we sat there and said, "Okay, you're trading on the New York Stock Exchange, the Nasdaq whatsoever. Right there, you believe that the diligence has been done and the standards are held. But not so in the case of some of these securities that were being offered from China onto our exchanges. We were tightening the belt in that regard, but there's a long way to go. Quick and final question for you. How realistic is the risk that you could see a China invade a Taiwan in the coming years? One, um, knowing what I know, I hope to God that never happens. There is no good outcome for China and there is no good outcome for us and all our allies that will that will support our efforts. Um, you know, I was talking to a, a China expert, quote unquote, the other day, and we were just kind of throwing things against the wall. And we said, how about a treaty? How about a treaty for five years? Because the greatest thing that we're that, that we're concerned about with Taiwan is the semiconductor industry. It's going to take everyone four to five years, whether China or the U.S., to get their foundries up running. Why don't we Why don't we have some great statesmanship, state craftsmanship, and say China, U.S., nothing happens for five years, and then we'll we'll readdress Taiwan after that, and then we have the business side of the case fairly well relaxed and depressurized. Is it perfect? No, it is not perfect. Do I say, you know, we're not going to defend Taiwan? No, I don't. But it changes some of the commercial dynamic. All right. Food for thought. Richard Spencer, former Secretary of the Navy, we appreciate your time tonight and your insights. Thanks, Morgan. Thank okay, you. take care. So the CNBC special taking stock is just getting started. Here's what's ahead. Coming up, it's a material world. We fire up the heavy machinery next. Plus, is the clock ticking on a Chinese export that's worn out its welcome? We explore. And Eastern promises? What China stocks are worth your attention? When we return on Taking Stock. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? 
by popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. Welcome back. The ongoing tension with China has spurred a wave of onshoring across the U.S. as companies in the federal government aim to secure the supply chains that have been dependent on China for decades. One of the companies leading that charge is MP Materials. They produce the rare earth materials that go into everything from electric vehicles to our smartphones. They also operate the only rare earth mine located in the U.S. Joining me now is the CEO and chairman of MP Materials, Jim Latinsky. Jim, thanks for being with me today. Uh, Rare earths are so crucial. Especially when you talk about not only, you know, not only so many of the goods that are currently in operation today, but also when you think about future opportunities like EVs. And I've heard them described as uh, rare earths are to magnets what semiconductors are to computing. And yet MP is the only mine. It's the only only situation we have here in North America. Why is that? Yeah, well, um Good morning, Morgan from Tokyo, and thank you for having me. And that's exactly it. Rare earth materials are uh, extraordinarily critical for the modern uh, economy for electrification, EVs, wind turbines, uh, drones, robots. And it really is, as you just said, it's, it's a, the, um, the semiconductor analogy is key. Um, these, these components are the upstream of what is ultimately trillions of downstream GDP. And uh, if we've learned anything from the last few years in the economy, before you even get to the geopolitics of it, uh, a single point of failure in a supply chain, uh, you know, is just not something we can tolerate. Uh, and so, you know, the mission of MP Materials is to restore the full rare supply chain to the United States of America from all the way upstream, all the way downstream to the, the magnets. And of course, when we talk about restoring it to America, we're talking about restoring it to America from China, which uh, is where the vast majority uh, of rare earths, not only mining, but also refining, uh, is happening right now. Yes, that's correct. The, if, as you, the, the, the practical reality is that at any one piece of this supply chain, if, if you don't have it all, then it is a single point of failure. And so the way to think about this supply chain is there's really three key components. There's the mining, there's the refining, and then there's the magnet making. And if you look at each of those pieces, ultimately down when you get to the magnet making, the Chinese magnet makers have a 90 plus percent share, which means you know our great companies building, again, EVs, uh, wind turbines, or all sorts of other electronics devices for electrification, um, you know, they're, they're reliant on the Chinese supply chain as a single source. Yeah, I, I mean, I've had conversations with officials within the Biden administration who have made it very clear that rare earths are, are a key focus of trade and commerce. They're a key focus of national security as well, because you're talking about rare earth materials that go into things like F-35 fighter jets uh, as well. Uh, so, so what is it taking for you to be able to stand up this vertically integrated process of from extraction of those rare earth materials all the way to that magnet making process uh, and pulling that away from China and making it this, this reshoring effort? Sure. Um, well, the good news is actually we've been at this for quite some time. So uh, I founded the company in 2017. We took over Mountain Pass, which had been uh, fallen into bankruptcy. Uh, people believed that the Chinese had taken over the industry and that an American company couldn't compete. Um, we restored Mountain Pass. We're now producing more rare earth materials in the United States of America than we ever have in the 70-year history of Mountain Pass. Hmm. Um, so that's the good news. But the job isn't done. We actually have 
uh, two more stages that are working in parallel. The second stage is the refining, which uh, you know, we've stated publicly that that commissioning process is now happening. Uh, if you rewind, Morgan, about a year ago, we announced a total of a $700 million plan. Uh, we announced with, uh, to tell you how important the rare supply chain is, we, we had a partnership announced uh, with the Department of Defense where the President of the United States himself wanted to announce that. Uh, and so you, you can find that on YouTube. But at that time, about a year ago, we, we announced that we would commit $700 million to investing in the refining and the magnetics piece. And so we're, we're in the process of commissioning the refining piece. But then also in parallel, um, we have a facility in Fort Worth that we're, uh, will be a magnet facility. We broke ground on that in April, and that building is now done. It'll take us some time to, you know, to actually make the magnets, but uh, that facility, we have a, a very large and foundational customer in General Motors. So we are working in parallel uh, and quickly uh, to solve this problem. And now you're joining me from Japan as well. Talk to me about what you're doing in Japan and how yes. this speaks to the global dynamics of this crucial supply chain. Yes, and so uh, Japanese industry is, is as concerned as American industry or pretty much all of global industry. And it really is, before you get to the geopolitics of it, it's just the single point of failure aspect. And the other thing is, is that d depending on your view of whether this is you know, a, just a very competitive decade ahead uh, in the global economy or, or it's going to devolve into something worse, the practical reality is, and I don't think that people fully appreciate this, but the Chinese OEMs are actually outselling the European OEMs in electric vehicles in Europe. And so I think when we, you know, a lot of times in the West, we tend to be backward looking at some of these challenges. Um, but the Chinese have very thoughtfully utilized the upstream of the supply chain to move downstream. And so I think that the bigger issue uh, for American industry, for Japanese industry, for European industry is making sure that there's uh, diversity in the supply chain so that even if it isn't, uh, you know, a nefarious reason, even if it's just a competitive reason, one has to think that if there's, you know, a grab for materials and, and certain components upstream, that if the, if the upstream is controlled by China, the Chinese companies competing against our companies are going to get access to those materials first. And so, you know, our entire goal is to make sure that we create a magnetics champion in the West and so that we can, you know, help reduce some of that single point of failure risk. Okay. Well, Jim Latinsky, we appreciate you joining us from Japan, the CEO of MP Materials. Sure. Thank you. Thank Coming up, as tensions between China and the U.S. do continue to rise, is TikTok toast. We're going to talk whether Congress could ban the app over security fears. That's next. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is Constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to Indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
Welcome back. TikTok remains under pressure as a strong bipartisan effort in Congress uh, continues looking to take action against the Chinese social media app, citing security concerns. So just how serious is this potential security threat? Well, let's bring in James Foster. He's CEO of cybersecurity platform Zero Fox. Foster, uh, as you go by, uh, it's great to have you here tonight. And, and I do want to break this down because we've seen many states and we've seen uh, from the federal government standpoint, uh, we've seen some laws go into place to uh, ban TikTok on government phones, for example. Uh, there's talk and reports about things like surveillance, but, but the idea that it's actually a security risk. From your standpoint, tell me what you've seen and why not only individuals, but companies need to be aware. Well, good evening. Um, look, I think there's a, a broad point we need to make here. China doesn't care about your privacy. You know, personal privacy has been intertwined in the fabric of the United States since the Bill of Rights. Thank you, James Madison. These expectations were modernized in 1974 by the U.S. Privacy Act, and they're constantly being tweaked by our regulatory bodies today. China doesn't have anything like that. I mean, look at what they've done in their own country. The government has access to over 400 million cameras and over a billion smartphones in their country. That's more cameras than we have people in the United States. And they're on every block and in every building, and they're taking that sentiment globally. And they don't care about their own citizens' privacy, yet alone ours. So whether it's a spy balloon or TikTok on your phone, China doesn't believe that you have an inherent right to privacy nor ours. And that fundamental difference in privacy beliefs leads to the security challenges and the security risks that we see in the United States today. So let's talk a little bit about those challenges and those risks, because you've testified before Congress uh, to talk about this very subject. Yeah, it, look, uh, China's gathering information now on 200 million people throughout the U.S., on TikTok and more than 5X that globally, because TikTok is an intelligence goldmine for China. When you register TikTok on your phone, you have to use a legitimate phone number first, can't be a virtual phone number. Then you can share your name, birth date, phone's entire contact list, access to your camera and microphone. This creates a social graph for them that have now have over a billion users and they know who you are and where you live and what you like. But what's really interesting here with the technology that's out there now with artificial intelligence, before I could tell that you were a 30-year-old living in D.C. Now I could tell that you're a 35-year-old living in D.C. as a health worker with a wife, two kids under five, and with an AI model, I can predict who you're going to vote for in the next election. This is one of the things that's really, really terrifying, those on Capitol Hill today, is yeah. that a government may know who is going to be elected before we do as the general public. So, so just to back up for a minute, because I, you can make similar arguments about a, a meta, perhaps, or even a snap in terms of in terms of data collection and just how much it tells about and reflects back on, on, onto users. Um, but TikTok is owned by ByteDance. I think they would probably say hey, we're a U.S. subsidiary. We're headquartered here in the U.S. We're in talks with Cepheus right now about the possibility of a third party in the U.S. overseeing the code, although I think there's some debate about what that technology transfer and whether okay. that could even happen. What, what makes TikTok, from your standpoint as a cybersecurity expert, what makes TikTok in particular such a big security risk? And you've outlined some of this already. Uh, and, and what a companies need to know about that as they assess that risk, especially as it does compare to, say, the American social media companies? Look, you had a speaker on just a couple times ago when Richard talked about the military and private sectors fusing in China. 
That's exactly right. And it fuses into the technology sector as well. And we've seen that, that China has not been afraid to put their finger down and say, this is what we're going to do in the technology sector. We want access to your information. You have to conduct a security review. So let's make no mistake and not pretend that China doesn't have access to ByteDance and any of the technology and or data it wants to get its hands on. And we've seen in the last 90 days at ZeroFox, an increase of over 700% in fake accounts, scams, and malicious content on TikTok. And that catalyst event was the government started banning TikTok. And so it brought awareness to TikTok. It brought awareness on, well, what's out there? What should be uh, vulnerable? And they are using this now as a, a catalyst to, to attack organizations and individuals. Foster, great to get your thoughts and your insights uh, on this very Thanks, crucial Mark. topic. James Foster, the CEO of Zero Fox. Don't go anywhere. There's much more ahead in this CNBC special, Taking Stock. Stay with us. Coming up, China stock check-in. Risk and mystification from the economy you can't afford to ignore. Plus, from bushels to barrels, which commodities are right for you? And have checkbook will travel? The wealthy Chinese cohort for whom the party is over. That and more when we return. Welcome back. The disappearance of a China Renaissance CEO, Bao Fan, has sent a shockwave throughout the international investment community. It's just the latest concern for investors seeking to put money to work in the region. So how should investors navigate some of these challenges going forward? Let's bring in Brendan Ahern, the chief investment officer of Crane Shares. Brendan, it's great to speak with you today. Um, I, I do want to start right there because we've seen a strong rally in Chinese stocks uh, in the last couple of months uh, with a reopening. And I want to get to that in, in more mm -hmm. detail. But first, the fact that you, di you did see um, you did see. Chinese stocks and a number, a number of ADRs that are traded here come under pressure, given the headlines of this executive disappearance. Just, just how real is that risk um, for some of these biggest publicly traded companies in China? And does it potentially signal another round of regulatory crackdowns? Yeah, I, th I think it's a, a very unfortunate situation. China Renaissance, a healthcare TMT oriented investment bank. You know, it, it appears, and it's hard to tell how this plays out, Morgan. I don't think we can jump to conclusions. Mm -hmm. There was a former employee who, based on his former employer, ran into some issues, regulatory issues in China. So it's it's feasible, but that this uh, the China Renaissance uh, president, you know, that he is being questioned based on this other employee's situation at his previous employer and, and that hopefully he gets, you know, does a Q&A with the regulators and in, uh, is back at work on, on Monday in China. You know, time, time will tell. I don't think we can jump to conclusions uh, quite yet. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the K-Web and what we've seen in terms of Chinese stocks uh, and, and Chinese exposed stocks on the heels of this reopening. It's it, K-Web's down about eight nine percent uh, over the past month, but it's up big since October. Uh, I guess talk me through whether we've seen the best of the gains as we've seen the reopening play out, or whether there's further to go here. Yeah. I mean, our, our thesis has been that after the party Congress, you've seen China make very significant policy changes on zero COVID real estate, as well as the U.S.-China political relationship. 
And that helped fuel this reopening trade uh, where KWEB literally went up 100 percent. And obviously we're seeing a little we're seeing a correction. We're seeing a pullback. And that this happened before the balloon. It happened before the uh, very harsh rhetoric from Fed officials where we've seen the dollar get very, very strong over the last two and a half weeks. So I think some of the pullback correction we're getting is not even really related to balloon gate. Uh, it's not, you know, it's simply just we're getting a correction, we're getting a pullback. And next week, Morgan, we're going to have earnings from some very significant companies, Alibaba, Badu, and NetEase. So and that could provide that next catalyst uh, uh, for KWeb. Okay. Um, something else that we haven't been talking about very much here, at least stateside, is the fact, and this was just a headline this morning, China pumps uh, $121 billion U.S. into economy in the biggest one-day cash injection to spur post-COVID growth. Uh, while we're seeing the Fed here go on tightening, this aggressive tightening cycle over the past nearly year now. We're seeing other major central banks do the same thing in other major economies. Not so in China. It's still a very stimulative environment there. Mm -hmm. How much of a tailwind does that still have yet to give? Yeah, and that's why we are uh, an exact thesis on why we think investors should buy this dip in K-Web, Morgan, is that you have central banks globally are tightening. And that's because of high levels of inflation. And that's against a backdrop of high equity valuations, say, here in the U.S. and Europe and elsewhere. China, it's almost the exact opposite situation. You have quantitative easing. Interest rates are falling. Um, you know, equity valuations are reasonable. And so we think that, you know, China on an absolute as well as on a relative basis looks really strong combined with the China consumer coming back online across 2023. Okay, we're going to have to watch those earnings next week carefully uh, and see whether we see the same type of rotations from the pandemic darlings to the names that are, are tied to reopenings in China that, that we saw here in the U.S. It's going to be going to be interesting to see what the commentary is. Brendan Ahern, thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you, Morgan. Coming up, China is expected to be one of the biggest energy stories of 2023. And despite the recent decline in oil prices, demand is still likely to be strong for the world's biggest importer of crude. We're going to discuss next. Welcome back. China could be one of the biggest stories for oil in 2023 as the country's post-pandemic reopening is reigniting demand for energy and petroleum products. Goldman Sachs estimates that China could boost global oil demand by 1.2 million barrels per day. And joining us now is Don Stroyven, senior economist at Goldman Sachs. Don, thanks for being with me this morning or this evening. Um, give me your outlook for, for crude, because we've seen it come under pressure in recent days. But then you have this IEA report just this week that uh, resurgent China could drive oil demand this year and that supply uh, looks to exceed demand for the first half of 2023, but that the balance could quickly shift uh, in part because of output declines from Russia and, of course, this demand from China. Yeah, thanks for having me, uh, Morgan. So I, that's exactly right. So I think, you know, since the November uh, stock, since the November uh, oil market sell-off, um, oil prices have been range-bound and have sort of been caught between relatively soft spot fundamentals and an improving uh, macro outlook and especially improving outlook for, for China demands. And so we think that China reopening will be the game changer for oil prices this year uh, and is the main reason why uh, Brent prices uh, we think should start to uh, exceed $90 per barrel uh, in the summer 
in June and reach $100 per barrel uh, by the end of this year, as the return uh, of, of China uh, should really uh, push markets back, uh, back into a deficit. Um, and the confidence into this bullish forecast that China will uh, boost global oil demand by 1.2 million barrels per day is driven both by fundamental analysis and some pretty encouraging high frequency data uh, that, we're, that we're seeing at the moment. Um, okay, so $100 a barrel for Brent later this year. Um, that, that sounds a little, that, that, that sounds inflationary, right? Is there an expectation that OPEC, which has been holding steady at, at its current production levels after, after tapering them off, that they're going to ramp in response to prices going higher and the supply-demand dynamic shifting, or, or that they're going to continue to hold steady? And I ask that uh, knowing that Russia in many ways is kind of the wild card here and in some of the dynamics mm-hmm. with this Ukraine war and what it's meant in terms of sanctions uh, and Europe demand, et cetera. Yes, so our central scenario is that the comeback of China demand and a reduction in Russia's supply uh, of around half a million barrels per day will push the market back into a significant deficit, uh, put upward pressure on prices, and incentivize OPEC to reverse uh, its production cuts that it implemented uh, in November uh, November of last year. Um, that's, that's our central case. Um, now, I think that the risk here are probably skewed uh, towards uh, open staying somewhat longer in a, in a waiting mode uh, and and just observing the data uh, and and keeping production production flat. Okay, uh, Don Stroyven, we appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, coming up, a big and sudden increase in Chinese wealth flights. We're gonna take the we're gonna talk <laughs> the millionaire migration that is coming up next. Stay with us. Welcome back. The wealthy Chinese elite have been fleeing the country post-lockdown in record numbers. Robert Frank joins us now with the details. Robert, thanks for sticking around late on a Friday night into a holiday weekend with this key story. For you, for you Morgan, for you, anything. Now, this is, we talk about wealth flight in China. This is a very big and sudden increase. The number of Chinese millionaires asking about or applying for investment migration spiked by 600% just in the three weeks after China lifted those lockdowns. That's according to the advisory firm Henley & Partners. Last year, nearly 11,000 Chinese millionaires left the country. This year, experts say that number expected to be even higher. The vast majority of our clients are looking for, it used to always be plan B, um, but now it's plan B and plan C and plan D. What we see is a lot of them look to sort of develop a portfolio or at least sort of a geographical diversity in terms of where they and their family can go. And it's not just people, it's their fortune. So you took, take a look at the capital flight. That could be even larger. The Chinese wealthy expected to move more than $150 billion out of the country this year. There are growing concerns about the Chinese economy and the government. Those are the main reasons that the China wealthy are leaving. President Xi's crackdown on tech and real estate and his common prosperity campaign also creating sort of cultural threats for the wealthy. Their favorite destinations as to where they're going. Well, most of those are in Europe, mainly Portugal and Greece, as well as Australia and Singapore. The U.S. not quite as popular as it used to be, but still seeing a rise in applications. You know, all that China 
capital expected to boost the real estate markets, the local economy, and the investment markets in those destination countries. Uh, but Morgan, if you look at what, what we've seen with Baofan and some of this other news, it's no wonder that the wealthy are kind of hedging their bets and looking for secondary passports and visas. Now, we've seen this type of dynamic, as you touched on, in China in years past. So what is the government doing now to stop it? They haven't made any announcements this time around. You know, when they lifted lockdowns, we saw this sudden burst. So it's too soon for them probably to say anything. Basically, you know, they have very strict capital controls in China, but they don't like all this capital and the brain, uh, brain drain to leave China. So if it gets to a point where it's excessive, they will start to crack down even more. All right, Robert Frank, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, it was great to see you. Uh, and just getting a quick check on the markets. The S&P finishing the day lower, the NASDAQ as well. The Dow eking out again. It's a three-day holiday weekend. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.